the boundaries of human capacity of human survival was different than what the literature said that the human body could survive if we did the right thing to them at the right time and was able to keep at least a little bit of blood supply going during that hour with chest compressions. And so this was a paradigm shift. And we realized that there was a whole new opportunity of patients that if we could get them on in an hour on this pump, that we could have significant survival benefit. And actually just this last week, we've now had two people that are going to walk out of the hospital who otherwise would have been pronounced dead. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a place where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. It's hard to believe, but this is actually our 40th episode. So first off, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you for helping us make this podcast what it is. So in this episode, co-host Dr. Andrea Austin interviews Dr. Zach Shiner. Now, Andrea will introduce Zach a lot more in just a second, but basically Zach is an ER doctor who's an expert in advanced resuscitation techniques, including things like ECMO and Reboa. If you've never heard of those things, don't worry. At a really basic level, ECMO is the idea of creating a human-machine interface uh, that allows you to bypass either the lungs or the heart and lungs of a patient, depending on how you set it up. And a lot of what Zach talks about is building teams that are able to put somebody onto an ECMO circuit in the middle of a cardiac arrest, something that's called eCPR. There's great stuff in this episode, things about team-based resuscitation, cultural change within an organization, and doing the internal and external work it really takes to perform during a high-paced resuscitation. So as one important disclaimer, at the beginning of this episode, Zach talks a lot about his experiences in training, and I definitely want to point out that best practices in terms of supervision and training have evolved markedly, and so his stories do not at all represent the current state of affairs in emergency medicine residency training. Before we jump into the episode, a quick reminder that our book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, will be coming out on May 11th on Amazon. It's been called Advanced Decision Life Support in early reviews, and it's really a book I wish I had when I was starting emergency medicine training. Like the podcast, it has a deep dive into mental models around performance under pressure both in and out of the emergency department, and honestly, I am just beyond thrilled to get to share it with you. So look out for it on Amazon on May 11th. In the meantime, if you want to learn more or see a sample chapter, you can go to emergencymind.com book. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. It's my pleasure today to have Dr. Zach Shiner, who is the Chair of Emergency Medicine at Sharp Memorial Hospital in San Diego, California. He has helped pioneer extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation for patients in cardiac arrest. He has published extensively in the field of resuscitation, and he is the co-editor of the upcoming Extracorporeal Life Support Organization ECPR textbook. His recent paper in the Journal of Emergency Medicine has given credence to emergency physician-initiated ECMO. He hosts the ED ECMO podcast, co-chairs the Emergency ECMO program, and directs ECMO Reboa Conference Reanimate, and speaks around the world on the subject. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Andrea. Great to be here. So our audience is a mix of medical and non-medical people. So if you heard a lot of an abbreviations in that 
opening, rest assured, we're going to get into some of the details on it. Uh, but what I'd like to start with is your origin story. How did you end up being an emergency medicine physician and really the special type of emergency physician that you are doing all these advanced resuscitation techniques? Yeah, so that's a, I mean, that's a long story. And I think that along the way, there's so many pieces in there that contributed to where I am now. And particularly in, I think, the interest of this podcast, where you start thinking about how does your mind work? How do you, how do you get to a place where you can be under these high pressure situations and maybe uh, thrive in them? So uh, my story uh, starts, I guess, when we start saying after we get into medical school, I really thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, did a lot of, to put myself in a position to do that, and then did my first rotation in the emergency department at LA County Hospital in uh, at USC. And it was just a total game changer. I just felt like this was where I was supposed to be. And, uh, and I'm so happy that I ended up changing everything in my fourth year of medical school and switched into emergency medicine. Uh, and went from there, uh, back, stayed at residency there, and uh, and now I'm an emergency physician down in San Diego. So when in your training did you start explicitly working on the mental aspects of your performance? Mm. So I think this is something that you gather as you're growing up. I mean, this is not something that starts in medical school. This thing, this whole concept of, of pressure and being in a situation uh, is developed over years of having uh, exposure to this and in ways to experiment and ways to fail because you, you really need to be able to be in those high pressure situations and understand where your limitations are understand where your where you thrive and to be comfortable in them so uh, i think for me a lot of this involved sports it involved um, maybe public speaking opportunities uh, places where a lot of focus is directed on you as an individual and uh, where you get to either shine or fail. Uh, but the focus is sort of in this high pressure area. Do you make decisions well? And can you become comfortable in that, in that arena? And so for me, that was uh, in football, probably in particular, which I played a few years in college on a very JV level team, but that was, that was one of those places where you, you, you develop that, that concept of needing to have a team, uh, having a lot of focus on an individual, and then um, also having the ability to, to perform, to be able to say, I'm in this situation that I could potentially do good or bad, but I need to, to step up to the plate and, uh, and push the limits and make sure that I, I make good decisions. So for me, I think it was a long, long thing. I think this is for almost all emergency physicians. This is a place where you develop the skills of being in a high pressure situation over years of having exposure to uh, in various realms, whether that's sports or, or performing music. That's really interesting. I'm thinking back to my own residency and I don't remember a lot of conversation about how to handle nerves or feeling even fearful about what was going to happen in a case. It was kind of like, well, you just keep doing it. And then one day, you know, you're going to be able to ride that bicycle. So I'm wondering now thinking back on your training, 
do you feel it was the same or do you feel like there was some very deliberate things that you were taught? Mm, that's a great question. I think at LA County, you were thrown into the fire. And I think this probably changed over the years, but particularly when I was in residency there, I mean, there was not a lot of oversight. Uh, there were not a lot of attendings around of you know, trained physicians, people that are out of residency that have completed everything. And so you were on your own and you really did need to step up to the plate and, uh, and perform. And it also encouraged you to know your stuff. You had to go home and read and learn and make sure that you were prepared for the next shift that you had. Uh, and in a graded fashion, as you move through residency where you had increasing levels of responsibility that you were ready for the next day that, that came. And so I think, do you think that the type of training that, that I had at LA County it gave you the opportunities to be in those pressure situations uh, extensively. Now, is that the right way to train people? Mm, you could argue both ways. You could argue that there's a downside to that. And in some ways, you know, performing a musical instrument in front of a lot of people or performing a sport in front of a lot of people, the consequences are relatively small compared to the consequences of performing badly in the emergency department. There should be some level of autonomy, but also some level of oversight. Uh, I think LA County did provide though a unique opportunity to really own your own pressure situations, to be able to get comfortable with them just because they were so common. So I think this concept of having to stay poised under pressure is interesting. And I can think back to a time when as a faculty member, I was supervising a second year that was going to do an intubation. And very commonly at a teaching program, several people had came over to watch so they could learn from this situation. And the resident that was about to do the intubation looked at me and said, I'm really nervous. I wish everybody wasn't here watching me. And I told him he could do it and he needed to do it in front of his peers. So afterwards, when I reflected on it, I wondered if I was a good faculty member, but I think it was important for him to be able to do that. What advice do you have for people as they feel nervous about doing the procedure and they also feel nervous having a room full of people looking at them and quite frankly, sometimes making judgments about them as they're trying to do this difficult procedure? I guess that the aspect of this that we're gonna try and focus on here is how do you get to that place? So that resident was not comfortable with it. And I mean, all of us have had that feeling, right? We don't want to be in the spotlight. This is high pressure. We want to be alone. We want to be able to, to do this by ourselves. Uh, but there's also, I think, an aspect where you sort of become singularly focused. So uh, I just realized this, I mean, last night, as I was thinking about today that we were going to talk, uh, I was on shift and we had a cardiac arrest and you become so singularly focused, you don't even really realize how many people are looking at you or how many people are watching. And so maybe in some ways, uh, the development of a true leader under pressure is that you can isolate yourself from the surrounding situation, that you can be singularly focused. And this is part of how we've organized our teams for our advanced resuscitation is that you have to be organized or you have to be 
isolated to one task at a time so that you can do it very well. And so we've compartmentalized how we run our resuscitations because we understand that you, you only have so much bandwidth and if you can focus it in certain areas, then you can do a better job. So maybe getting back to your initial question, which is how do you, how do you get to that point? I do feel it involves years of training before you get to the main stage. So years of being exposed to this and, and having opportunities to, to go through it before that final, that, that real like in the emergency department running the resuscitation uh, occurs. So let's go ahead and pivot to what you had just introduced is this team-based resuscitation that you've really pioneered at Sharp Memorial. And I think we do have to lay the stage for our listeners because this idea of ED ECMO and eCPR is probably going to be foreign to a lot of our listeners. So if you could just break it down in a digestible bit for knowing some of our listeners are uh, EMTs, some are interested in going to medical school and probably understand what CPR is, but not really the next step of what your team's doing. Sure. So cardiac arrest uh, has a very poor survivorship, uh, despite what TV shows show you where everybody comes back. About 8% of people survive from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So very, very low percentage. And a lot of those are because you got an AED, you got to, you got to, hooked them up to a defibrillator and you shocked them and got them back. So uh, it's a really small percentage of people that actually survive neurologically intact from cardiac arrest, uh, meaning that your heart stopped, you stopped breathing, you're, you are truly dead at that point. We felt that we could do this better. And the way that we started to do this about 10 years ago was we use a machine that can artificially pump the blood through your body. So we put in some tubes into your groin that access the big veins and arteries. We pull blood out, we put some oxygen in there, we take off some carbon dioxide, and then the machine allows pressure to build up in the arterial side so that you can get blood to your heart and to your lungs and to your brain. And so this gives us an opportunity uh, to have time, time to bring people back when they would have otherwise died. And in our situation, in a, in a patient population that probably has more like a less than a 1% chance of survival, we're getting about 30% of those people back. And so this has been a big game changer to have uh, a modality or a therapy that can provide such large increase in survival for these cardiac arrest patients who otherwise would have been pronounced dead. Wow. I'm just sitting here trying to process those numbers. And to a lay person, they might be saying 30%. Really? That's it? Because on TV, like you said, it's it's oftentimes greater than 50%. Um, so just to really reiterate that point, this is such a game changer because the patients that you guys are bringing back had what you're saying, less than a 1% chance in many of these cases. So this is really phenomenal game-changing work. So let's even take a step back. How did you get people in your hospital system to even consider this? Because this is something that requires financial resources, human resources, and it's different. 
I mean, it, the house of medicine is not always really receptive to something this novel. Yeah. And I would say we've now trained, I mean, in our conferences, we've trained people in, I think like 30 different countries and we've trained entire hospitals. And so I, I've been involved with so many different hospital discussions, exactly what you're describing right now is how do you get buy-in from everyone? And I would love to say that this was, uh, that we took all the, you know, right down the line of steps that went through the you know, committees and da, 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 da. but that that was not our story that was not our story at all and in a lot of ways this goes back to the LA County medicine where you understood that this was an opportunity for great improvement these are patients that would have been pronounced dead uh, had we not started this therapy and so 10 years ago we did have discussions with our CT surgeons and thankfully they were very receptive to this. Now, this is not what happens in a lot of places. There's a lot of, of resistance, but our CT surgeons uh, get great. I give them great credit for the success of our program because they were so uh, accepting of us trying to improve the survival of patients that would have otherwise been pronounced dead. And so we had a few big saves at the beginning of this, which jumps forward through a bunch of hoops that other hospitals have to go through, committees to get this accepted, purchasing things of, of machines. We had this already upstairs. And actually, a lot of hospitals have the device and the, the mechanism to make this happen in their hospital. But getting the, all the, the committees to agree on this is sometimes a bureaucratic mess. So for us, it was really simple. We put together a plan. I talked to some CT surgeon. I talked to our group uh, and then we started doing it. And our first patient was an unbelievable success. A patient that had near 59 minutes of chest compressions. Usually in, in patients that we resuscitate in the ER, we'll do about 20 minutes of chest compressions before everyone starts saying, okay, you know, chance of survival is just about zero. So we need to move on, pronounce the patient dead and keep going. But in this patient, we didn't. We persisted and we ended up getting them on this machine. And a couple hours later, he woke up in the ICU, was writing his name and asking if he could get this tube out of his mouth. And so this was a big save for us. And we realized that the boundaries of human capacity of human survival was different than what the literature said, that the human body could survive if we did the right thing to them at the right time and was able to keep at least a little bit of blood supply going during that hour with chest compressions. And so this was a paradigm shift. And we realized that there was a whole new opportunity of patients that if we could get them on in an hour on this pump, that we could have significant survival benefit. And actually just this last week, we've now had two people that are going to walk out of the hospital who otherwise would have been pronounced dead. These are big wins, big saves. And once you get one of those, the hospital, the nursing staff, the administration, everybody realizes the significance of what happened. Uh, and you can kind of move forward with your program and, and, and establish it as a, as a main part of your resuscitation strategies. So I'm curious, when you went to the CT surgeons, had you already formed a relationship with the surgeons? Were you already on good terms? Have you done anything outside the hospital socially before you brought up this novel concept? Mm, such a good and important point, Andrea. Relationships are everything. 
are everything. And yes, we had great relationship with them and they respected what we had, we were doing in the ER. They respected our ability to resuscitate and place catheters and, and do procedural aspects. And so that was a, a significant aspect of it. And I think they also recognized that this was an opportunity for improvement of patients that otherwise would be dead. And so I, I give them great kudos for, for helping to initiate our program and being willing to, to just do something that other hospitals hadn't really been doing. Like this wasn't a thing. Emergency physicians weren't out there in other places doing this. And so to, to not only accept the concept of us doing it at the hospital, but for us to be the cutting edge of this, I'm very thankful for them. I think this is such an important point to drive home because our performance in medicine is based on teams. So what you're describing for ED ECMO really requires collaboration. And there's a great paper I'll put in the show notes that actually defines what collaboration is based on. And it's based on trust and respect. And I hear a lot of emergency physicians say, I have terrible relationships with my trauma surgeons or, you know, fill in the specialty. And what I learned at LA County is one of the reasons I got along so well with the surgeons is I did stuff with them outside of work. You know, I, well, I guess it was work, but I taught ATLS or we taught stuff together at NTTC. And yes, sometimes we did go out for meals together. And what I learned through that is they began to see me as more of a whole person. And it's harder to be mean to somebody or have a bad working relationship once you start to see them in these other aspects. Oh, totally agree. And doing things outside of the hospital is paramount at our, I mean, this is different in an academic center where you have a gazillion people all around and it's a little difficult uh, with people coming in and out, but in a community hospital like mine, where we have no residents and, you know, we're going to be working with the same people for 20 plus years, you can develop very good relationships with these people. And I would encourage anybody out there in situations like this to, to do exactly what you did, Andrea is to forge relationships that uh, go beyond the scope of the work environment. Well, I want to take the focus really to kind of some of the nitty gritty detail of how you've actually organized the teams to accomplish ED ECMO. And we haven't even began to talk about Reboa, but I, I feel like there's some overlap in how your teams are organized at Sharp. And just to kind of set this up for the audience, it's my opinion that teams in medicine tend to be well organized around trauma, that it tends to be expected that roles are very clearly delineated with who's the trauma team leader, which nurse is putting in IVs, who's managing the airway. And they try to translate that into ACLS, into medical codes. But I have always found that medical codes tend to be less organized than traumas. And it, it really stresses me out, quite honestly. You know, I try to get my medical resuscitations to run with the same discipline as a trauma. And while I've never got to see you run a recitation at Sharp, uh, maybe someday I will, I'd really like to see if you can try to close that gap and explain how you created the team organization. 
Great question also, Andrea. We, I think when you, the, the specific comparison that you made, I think you really have to look at why that happens. And you could say that one of the reasons that a trauma resuscitation is different than a medical resuscitation is that it happens in a different room that the room for the trauma resuscitation is always the exact same place. And so everyone knows where to go in that room and they know where to stand and the ergonomics of the, of the resuscitation is the same. And so we think that that's a big deal. And we've translated that into our cardiac arrest as well to make sure that everybody stands in the exact same place and that they know their roles. First of all, you have to understand the overall concept and you have to understand how the organization, whether good or bad is done at our hospital. So that is job number one. Job number two is then to be willing to tell the people, if you are the leader of the group, that they need to go to those situations, that they need to set up the room in that way. And so last night, great example, we had a cardiac arrest and the initial way that the room was going to be set up was not right. It wasn't how we standardized it. And so I had to push a little people around, take a little differences and actually pull out some personnel who were not experienced enough to, to do that task, pull it, push in a few people that I had confidence in, uh, and then also explain the roles again before we started so that everybody knew what was expected of them. Like last night was maybe one of the perfect examples of where even though we've we reiterated this, we go through this, we go through it, we, you have to be in the moment as well if you have the opportunity. Sometimes you don't have the opportunity and patient arrests uh, unexpectedly in, in your department. But being able to get quickly back to that situation where you have an organization of the room, you have organization of personnel, people know their roles, that you can run a resuscitation much more smoothly in that way. I was just on a conference this weekend that was talking about how the military is looking at standardizing, they call them KSAs, knowledge, skills, and attitude. The idea is setting up minimum numbers of procedures that people have to have to essentially be qualified to do them. And I'm wondering, is that something that you know about your team members? Like, is it transparent? how many cases um, a nurse has been involved in, or is it just more of a sense? Like I have a sense that this person is experienced and ready for this, or is there actually data to drive that decision? You have a, a different situation at LA County or people who are in an academic center where there are so many different personnel coming in and out. Uh, at my hospital, I know everyone. I know what their experience is and I've worked with them. And so I, uh, I, and, and they're also, we work with them at our conferences. So we know how much experience they have in training for this. And so the, the natural slide is to have an inexperienced person be in the room for a cardiac arrest. You want to see or do your first chest compressions on patients. Yeah, that's not the right thing. I'm sorry, you have to get good at this. You have to develop that skill. For us, changing to a mechanical chest compression device is a very onerous task. And it takes someone who is strong and a strong personality uh, and willing to, to really make it happen. Understanding the level of competency of the personnel in your room is critical to running an organized resuscitation. In the trauma room, you wouldn't just let some 
random person come in or some inexperienced person all of a sudden roll or um, play a key role in the resuscitation. And so we also don't allow that to happen in our cardiac arrest. I think this is such an important concept and I think it's really going to grow in the next you know, decade that we have to do a better job of actually ensuring competency. And in your situation at a community hospital with a small team, that's easier. But in these, you know, academic hospitals, like I've worked in most of my career, it's very common that I'm walking into a room that sometimes I don't know anybody's name, let alone what their skill set is. And that's a huge hurdle to be able, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, you're learning after the fact, like, oh, now I see you're not doing adequate chest compression. So now I'm trying to fix that, which we know that every second that goes by that somebody's not getting adequate chest compressions, that's affecting their survivability and their neuro-intact survivability. You, we have to have trained personnel. Now, one of the aspects you did touch on was, do you have a minimum level of competency? Do you have a certain level of, of being exposed to this situation or doing this procedure? And that is a, that's a tough one because, and it's one that we're actually dealing with extensively in the eCPR in, in the, the machine that we're talking about for survival of cardiac arrest uh, in that realm, in that community right now, because there's a hospital in Minneapolis, which is having unbelievably good survival rates. And one of the things that they do is that they have a very few number of highly trained people doing the procedure. That's great if you have a couple of people who are willing to give their entire life to do that. But is that translatable to the rest of the world? And we are probably on the opposite end of that. We have all of our emergency physicians trained to do this procedure. And yet they probably are only going to get a couple of them. You know, myself being more common just because I'm in the department and uh, if there's a cardiac arrest going on, I'm probably going to be involved. But we have to somehow be able to have enough competency of the people there to do it, but also have the ability to have 24-hour coverage. So uh, there, it's a give and take in that situation. I think that's a great point. And I think that's something that we're going to be struggling with over, again, the next decade is it's great to have multiple people involved and trained to do this. But what is that? happy point. You know, in the surgical literature, if you need a hernia repair, you're best off going to the person that does, you know, just hernia repairs. It's the rare surgeon that just wants to do hernia repairs. They like to do some other procedures, but quite frankly, if I needed that, I probably would go to the person that only does that. So that's an interesting point of tension. And on that note, knowing that the docs in your group only get to do this procedure a couple times a year, what's the training like in between? Like, how do you keep them fresh that when you're not in the hospital, you can go to bed sleeping well, that you are, you feel that the product that your team members is providing is good? Yeah, emergency medicine is, is the tip of the spear for that question, right? Because you could say cardiac arrest. But then you could also say lateral canthotomy. You could say thoracotomy. So do you train someone how to cut open ribs? Do you train somebody how to uh, pop out an eyeball if it needs to be, if it's under too much pressure? Like there are a million different procedures, not a million, but there are a lot of procedures that you would need to stay competent on. There's not an easy answer. It would be great to say that ER docs should 
continuously 24 hours a day train on all these procedures and get have exposure to them so that if they ever had to do one that they the last one that they practiced on was you know a day before but that's just not realistic and so we do have to have some some compromise in that situation for us we they our er docs get a lot of exposure and training simply because we do these conferences so commonly and we talk about it almost nonstop to the point of maybe nausea by some of our our group members but other places you know you have to you have to decide on what the appropriate thing is so if you only get 70 cardiac arrests at your hospital per year and you have 40 docs well that means you're going to get about one cardiac arrest a year so it is a it is a difficult situation and there's no perfect answer to it my approach is trying to always stay humble and and know your limits and Fortunately, for a lot of the procedures that you're you're talking about, even a, a lateral canthotomy, while it's extremely time sensitive, there's at least one minute that you can go back to your desk. And if you need to open your phone and watch a YouTube video really quickly, and that might sound odd to some of our audience members, but I would rather have the physician that is like, wow, it's been five years since I've done a lateral canthotomy. I'm going to go back to my desk for a second and refresh myself that's what's right for the patient. Absolutely. Doing what's right for the patient is always our goal. And cardiac arrest, you don't really have time to go and read the book while you're doing active chest compressions. But agreed, there is a, each procedure has some time sensitivity where you can refresh your mind on how to do it, even if you haven't done it in a few years. So one of the things that's always struck me about you is you radiate this optimism. It's something that, you know, again, I've never got to work a shift with you, but just being around you at conferences and educational things that you have this brightness about your personality. You know, that's probably one of your superpowers. And this has been a really challenging year uh, with COVID and burnout is at all time high. And I'm wondering if you can try to describe that how do you have that? How do you maintain that optimism and, and, you know, what's going on behind the scenes sometimes? Is that just your base personality trait or is it something that you actually have to work at? Oh, thank you, Andrea. That's, that's a huge compliment. Well, I, I have to say, I think that a lot of this is that I really love my job. Like I love what we do. I think what our opportunity, there are not very many jobs in the world where, you can be better by simply reading, by simply getting exposed to more things. Like you, this has a significant impact on your, on your practice. And I'm not just talking about the crazy cardiac arrest. I'm talking about with everyone. Like, do you culturally understand the people that come into your hospital? Do you know what they're going through? Do you understand how, when they describe some situation that you didn't grow up like that, that you can get into their head and try and figure out what's going on and help them in the best way possible. So I think our job offers so many different aspects of life that it's easy, I think, to maintain interest, maintain passion for that. Now, some people find that as draining. Some people find that they get into this realm and they just can't deal with the the personalities, the manipulation, there's all kinds of different things that we deal with in the in the ER that can bog you down. But I think if you have a mindset that that what we have as a job is unique and 
and really awesome in so many ways that I think maintaining that passion is, is not terribly difficult. Now for COVID, and this maybe goes back to the idea of just team leadership in general, it was a very stressful time. And, uh, and I took over as chief a few months before COVID. So it was a, a big deal for our whole department. And I think there's a lot of things that go into maintaining a, a healthy relationship, a healthy culture in your department. And one of them is making sure that you lead from the front, is that when you have these, these opportunities to be the person that, that goes in for the first COVID patient or that starts working these shifts that are potentially risky, maybe at this point we now in hindsight know that, that we are quite protected with some of the things that we, we use. But at the beginning, to lead from the front, I think that is a way that you can develop a culture and a, a respect as the leader of the group. That's wonderful. So I want to pivot to talking a little bit more about leadership. And could you describe to the audience what your leadership style is and how you developed it and what you're doing to continue to work on it? Yeah, I think it has been a work in progress and and in no way am I an expert at this, continuing to learn every day. And there's a lot of people in our department that I've that I've looked up to in just figuring out how to do this. I think one of the things that is important, and you find this in a, a lot of people say it, but I'm I'm not sure how many people actually understand the importance of it. And that is just being a, a reader, a voracious reader for me has helped in a lot of ways to look at, at other people and how they do things and maybe how they're even portrayed. So the autobiographies or biographies of Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Bezos, Jobs. I mean, all these people, like you, you see what happens and you see how they struggle through situations and you see how they get portrayed, maybe for maybe biased against them. I think um, reading is one of the things that I so useful and also not even from just a, a biography standpoint, but find of a life enriching aspect. A lot of these books like Peak or, or some of the Malcolm Gladwell books, psychological books where you can figure out like what makes you, you and what makes you perform poorly during a shift. Like, for example, one of the things that was uh, an aha moment for me is realizing my calorie intake during a shift that maybe my decision-making is based on not having enough food or having too much caffeine or, or things like that. So I do think that our working in the department as well as just leadership things overall can be improved by looking at all aspects of your life and looking at other people and how they have gone into opportunities or decision-making and either done well or failed miserably. I think that's such a great point. And it hits on something that Dan and I have been talking about a lot this past year is reflecting on your own performance. And if you're always trying to do better, where's that edge? And you brought up nutrition. And actually I did an episode with Dr. Lisa Deutsch, who's an emergency physician and physician for the Orion astronaut crew. We talked about nutrition because I honestly think that's a, a huge part in our, how we think and how we perform on shift. You know, the whole thing about being hangry, I think there's probably actually some science behind that. So I, I think that's really interesting. Do you have a way that you're tracking 
what you're working on? Do you journal or are you using, I don't know, fitness devices to monitor what your heart rate's doing or, or anything objective or I guess even subject through journaling? You brought up a couple of different things here that I think are, are cool specs. Uh, and one of the things that I just thought about was also the impact of the previous patient you saw to your current decision-making. And like, if there's a stressful patient that goes on, I, I go into the next room and I realize I haven't heard a single thing that the patient said to me. Sometimes I like, you use the word pivot, but sometimes I'll pivot away from that and be like, now let's just, can you just tell me again about that? Realizing that I, I need them to actually tell their entire history again. And so one of the things I think is just looking at all the external environmental things that are involved with that current decision-making. So in the ER, that may be a patient external to it. It might be, you know, broader decisions within the hospital or broader decisions in life. How is your mental standing at that point? Are you stressed out? Are you anxious about the previous person that you just saw or interacted with? Those, it's hard to quantify that, but I think we can all recognize that our decision-making goes down significantly when we've been affected by a, a recent psychosocial stressor. So that's one aspect of it. I think as far as you got back to the mindfulness aspect and how do you reflect, I do think that is critical to your success. I have taken on, you know, like endurance athletic stuff to, to clear my mind. And, and I think that that is very useful for me. I think mindfulness is just a time to be quiet at some point is useful in the way of clearing your mind. But also I think that we underutilize quiet time to reflect on the course of your life. So what are you putting your energy into? So many times we are putting energy into things that maybe aren't even our goals or maybe not even uh, that fulfilling for us, or even, uh, you know, we think from a selfish standpoint about fulfillment, but also are they, are they in enriching the world? And so that quiet time um, where you can look at your own life and say, you know what, at this point, maybe, maybe I do take on this project, not because it's monetarily beneficial, or maybe not because it's uh, going to enrich my career, but that it is a, fulfilling thing for the world or fulfilling thing in your own mind. I think those, that time to reflect in any given day or any given week about the course of your life, I think that helps with your mental health tremendously. I just want to ask a quick follow-up to that. When you have that moment on shift where you're like, wow, that interaction with that person was so draining. I think what I struggled with during residency is it was always like, just go faster, keep pushing, keep pushing, like whatever that situation was, if you just keep moving, somehow that's the right answer where the longer I do this, I'm like, that's actually not the right answer because of exactly that dynamic that you're saying that you're still carrying it with you. So is there a word or like some physical thing you do to kind of like snap yourself back into it? Yeah. I, I think the aha moment for me on that one was I read some one of these, you know, Malcolm Gladwell-esque books that talked about the impact of psychosocial stressors on decision making. I think we've all heard the the one about court cases and how if you're right before lunch, you have a certain verdict versus right after lunch. 
that just hit home. And I said, wow, I, I just need to recognize it. So recognizing it, I think, is the first issue. The second issue is how do you get out of that? How do you get out of that mental anguish that you're in from, from the previous person? And for me, that means that you really do have to step away. You can't just keep pushing on. You need to go, and, and that might involve food, that might involve sugar, that might involve caffeine, uh, that might involve just going and you know, taking five minutes and sitting alone in a place that's quiet. But some way to get yourself out of that situation, recognize it for what it is, whether good or bad, or maybe inappropriate. Maybe you had, sometimes I think we play up in our mind how big the situation was. We over dramatize what happened and maybe just come to more of a reality. Okay, things are going to be okay. I'm all right. That was not reflective of me. That was reflective of that person, or maybe it was reflective of me and I need to get to a better spot and then go back into the next interaction. So I think getting a little bit of separation is key because you don't want to go into that next patient and make the mistake that you would never have made simply because you were not listening or you were too, you were too stressed out from the previous interaction. That's such great, great advice. We'd like to end every show with a challenge to our listeners. And this challenge could be something mental, something physical. I mean, I know looking at what you do with the ultra marathon training and, and all of this that could run the gamut, but what would you offer to our listeners to work on to improve their performance? Well, you mentioned the ultra marathon thing. I think there is one aspect that we, I think we underestimate the ability for the human body to take on challenges. So, so there's fear, right? Fear is a good thing in some ways. You want to allow it to direct your life. You want it to be a good source of deciding what to do and not to do. But sometimes fear is irrational and your willingness to take on the next challenge is thwarted because of something that you felt was either too scary or too big of a task or not, you weren't able to do it. And so maybe even a slightly variation on that is that sometimes fear is rational and good and yet it, you still need to push on. Like you still need to, to get over that, that initial hump to get to the place where you have done something that you never thought you could do before. So ECMO is a great example of that where people were all saying, you guys can't do that. Like that's, that really is not possible. ER physicians should not be doing this. And yet, and in a lot of ways, I was like, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't be doing this. But to have the ability to kind of push past that initial aspect and say, no, you know, I think I'm scared in this situation, but I think that if we push on that we could have a tremendous success. And so in a lot of ways, life should be perpetual yeses. When opportunities come your way that you have to, really decide to say no to something. And so I think if my challenge is, is how you phrased it, a challenge to the listener would be that in your life, you say yes. When the opportunity arises that you understand, you take all the situation, you take the, the data that you have, the appropriate fear that you have concerning it. Uh, and then if it makes sense and you think that this is a possibility that you say yes, Thank you, Zach. This has been such a great episode with so many pearls. And I just want to thank you for coming on the show today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Hi, folks. I just want to add a couple of additional notes to this podcast episode. During this episode, we talked about residents having a lot of autonomy when working at a county hospital. The supervision that residents receive in the modern era 
today is much improved from years past and there is appropriate oversight and graded responsibility. During this episode, we also discussed some really interesting concepts of ED ECMO and I also mentioned ROBOA, which is something we didn't even really get a chance to talk about today. But if you want to learn more about these advanced resuscitation techniques, please check out Dr. Shiner's website, edecmo.org, and also his podcast, ED ECMO, and check out his course on learning these advanced techniques called Reanimate. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.